all right, we are going to get into the Word today. Uh, we're going to continue in our Advent series, He is Coming on the Clouds, right? We, we wanted to remember this Christmas season that it's not just about the first time that Jesus came. It's also about the second time that He is coming, and that when He comes a second time, He's going to come upon the clouds, the same way that they saw him go, right? He disappeared in the clouds. The angel said in the same way he's going to come back. And Daniel saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds, presenting himself before the Ancient of Days and receiving an eternal kingdom. And that is what we look forward to is the eternal kingdom of our God. And uh, so it is week four of our teaching series. Uh, you can find the sermon notes in the bulletin. If, you, if uh, you missed Joy on the way in because you were running through the rain, she's got bulletins back there and she can get you the notes. Uh, but the notes are in the bulletin. Uh, they're also attached to this video on our website. And they're attached to this audio if you're listening to the podcast. So week four of Advent is love and adoration. So here's our big picture today. This is what we're going to go after, is that the Advent was the ultimate expression of God's love for us. And we return that love to him through adoration and obedience. Through adoration and obedience. Right? When, when somebody asked Jesus, what's the most important commandments? If there was one rule I should follow, what would be the one rule? Well, Jesus gave him two, right? Because Jesus always gives us more than we ask for. All right, so he asked for one. Jesus gave him two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this sums up the entire law and prophets. If you want to boil the whole Bible down to a pocket Bible, that's it right there. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, two different times in his writings to the churches, said the same thing, that loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law, right? So if love is the sum total of the law, then we should have a pretty good handle on what love is, right? This should be an important concept for us to dig into and to understand. And so that's what we're going to do today. Similar to what we did last week with joy, is we're going to dig into love. We want to understand love. And so we're going to look at love in the Old Testament. We're going to look at love in the New Testament. What does it mean? And then we're going to bring it around to the Advent. And what does love and adoration look like in light of the Advent? So that's our roadmap today. That's where we're going. So let's dig into this. I, I, I looked up lots of definitions of love, and specifically from a biblical context, what does love mean? I only put one in your notes, but I've got a few that I want to just kind of read through with you so that we just have a broad understanding of this concept of love. The first one is this. It's a feeling of deep affection that defines our relationship with God and dictates how we should treat others. Right, So there is a feeling component to love, but just like we talked about with joy last week, that joy is not just an emotion, and love is not just a feeling. Right, There's got to be something deeper, but understanding love as a feeling of deep affection is a good starting place. How about this definition? I like this one. The faithful and benevolent giving of oneself to another. That you're, if you're giving yourself to somebody else in a way that is faithful and benevolent, which means for their good, 
If you're giving yourself to somebody for their good, that is an act of love. The central attribute of God's character is love, right? God is love. It's also the primary fruit of his followers. You know, we look to Galatians a lot for the fruits of the Spirit, right? What's the first one in the list? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Love is the primary attribute of his followers. Now, let's get to the one that's in your notes. Because again, just like we talked about with joy last week, it's not just an emotion. It's an inner state of being. And so we don't want love to just be a feeling. We want it to be an inner state of being. And so here's our definition. An inner quality expressed outwardly as a commitment. Right? This is important. Love is not an emotion. It's a commitment. I'm going to make a commitment to seek the well-being of the other through concrete acts of service, right? So this is something that's happening internally inside of me, but because it's happening internally inside of me, I am committing myself that I'm going to do what's best for others through concrete acts of service, David Wilkerson, who is well known for starting Teen Challenge, right, the, uh, the most effective uh, drug rehab program across the country. He founded it like 50 years ago. David Wilkerson said it like this, love is not only something you feel, it's something you do. Right? You can say, I love you. You can say, I feel love for you in my heart. But if you're not doing anything as a concrete expression of that love for the good of somebody else, then you're not fully expressing love. So let's look at this expressed in the Old Testament, and then we'll dive into the New Testament. There's a few Hebrew words for love, but uh, there's two that are the, the primary words. One is the primary verb, and the other is the primary noun. So let's look at the verb, ahev. And a have basically means love between two parties, such as between a parent and a child, between a husband and a wife, or between God and people. And this is the most frequent verb used for love in the Old Testament. So, for example, Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is a have. It's love as a verb, love as an action. When love is referred to as a noun in the Old Testament, it's most likely the word hesed. And hesed, the best translation of hesed is loving kindness. So if you're reading in the Old Testament and you read the word loving kindness, you're reading the word hesed. Right now, it's interesting. In the New King James Version of the Bible, it actually translates this word into mercy, which I don't think fully expresses the idea of God's love, right? So I feel like that misses the mark. It, uh, loving kindness, right? So what, what's the... Oh, now, now we're going to play Bible trivia here. Uh, what's the psalm where it repeats the same line over and over again, like one person sings a line and then the congregation? It's like Psalm 136 or something like that, right? Which the line that gets repeated over and over again is God's loving kindness endures forever, right? That word hesed is God's loving kindness. What is hesed? It's a loyal and steadfast love. 
right? It's a love that doesn't quit, that doesn't stop. It's a love that just keeps pressing on, but it's also a love that requires action. It's a love that requires action. And so this is the most common noun used for love in the Old Testament. But here's the interesting thing is that hesed in the Old Testament almost always describes God's love for his people in the context of covenant, right? And so hesed is really its covenant love. If you've heard the term Hasidic Jews and you think, well, that's, you know, because they grow those little things off the sides of their, you know, sideburns or they've got the beards or the... No, Hasidic Jews means they are Jews who focus on covenant love. Now, all those little accoutrements that go with it are just part of their tradition, but that's what it means. It's covenant love. So what does covenant love look like in the Old Testament? We're actually going to do a Bible study of Deuteronomy. All right, so we're going to dig into Deuteronomy here to understand covenant love. Let's start in Deuteronomy 4, verses 37 and 38. It says, Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. And then how about chapter 7, starting in verse 7? The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what are we reading here? We're reading that God chose the Israelites because of his love. Not because of anything that they had done to deserve it, right? He's like, I didn't choose you because you were mighty. I didn't choose you because you were more in number. No, you were a small nation. You were a small people. I didn't choose you because of those things. I chose you because of my love. And then because I chose you, I did mighty works on your behalf, right? He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness. He drove out the Canaanites and established them in the promised land, right? So God chose them because he loved them. And then if we continue on in Deuteronomy 7, let's read verse 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God... This sound familiar, Robin? This is one of our memory verses. Hallelujah. Come on. That the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness, there's that word hesed, to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Right? So God, because of this hesed love, he is a God that loves in the context of covenant, which means God is going to be faithful to this love even when the people were unfaithful. So God's love motivated him to keep his covenant with the children of Israel, even when they were unfaithful. So we see this love. God chooses them because of his love. He remains faithful to them because of his covenant love. And so then what is the people's response? Deuteronomy 11.1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God... 
and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. So what does loving God look like? It looks like obedience. It looks like obedience. They return God's love by keeping his charge, his statutes, all of those things. If we jump down to verse 13 of Deuteronomy 11, it says, It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in the season. Right? God says, if you will love me, I will bless you. I will bring the rain. I will bring the fruit. I will bring the harvest. And what does it mean to love him? It's to be obedient. Right? So this is our Old Testament context of covenant love. God chose them. God remained faithful to them. God did mighty works on their behalf. And their responsibility in receiving God's love was to reciprocate that love through obedience to his law. You guys tracking with me so far? All right. Now, when we switch to the New Testament, it looks incredibly similar. Now, let me clarify. I'm not saying that the way we relate to God is the same, because it is not. In the Old Testament, they were made righteous by following rules. In the New Testament, we are not. Right? There is nothing that we do that makes us right before God. So I want to clarify. I'm not saying that the way that we relate to God and righteousness is the same as the Old Testament. But this context of love seems incredibly similar. In the Greek, you guys, if you've gone to church any length of time in your life, I'm sure you've heard the teachings on the Greek words for love, that there's three Greek words for love, right? There is uh, eros, which refers to passionate, romantic love, right? It's where the word erotic comes from, right? It is, it is a love between a man and a woman. It is a, a sexual love. The word eros never appears in the New Testament, right? So that was a part of the Greek culture. That was the word that they used, but it was not a word that the writers of the Bible used. Then there is phileo, which is friendship love, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, so there's phileo, brotherly love. And then there is agape, right? And so those two words for love are used frequently in the New Testament. But I want to focus on the word agape because this is the, the love of God, right? This, this was... Uh, uh, the unconditional love of God. It's known as a moral goodwill which proceeds from principle rather than attraction or charm, right? It means I'm going to do good for you because I've made a commitment to love. It's not because I'm attracted to you. It's I may not even be having any good feelings for you, but I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to do what's best for you. That's agape, it also refers to loving the undeserving, which guess who the undeserving are? We are. Is God's loving us even when we don't deserve it. And so then if we're living in agape love, it's when we are loving those who do not deserve it. We don't have any good feelings about them. They've given us lots of reasons to not have any good feelings about them. 
and we still choose to love them anyway. That's agape. Here's what I found fascinating. So again, you've probably heard that Bible study before on all the different words for love in the Greek language. But here's something I just learned this week that I never knew before, is that this word agape was rarely ever used in Greek culture outside of the Bible. Scholars can't hardly find it anywhere. The other two words are used all over the place in Greek culture. So even though the Greek culture had a word specifically designed for unconditional love, love completely separate from feelings, loving the undeserving, they never used it. It wasn't until the writers of the Bible began to use this word that now it's synonymous with God himself. But prior to the Bible, the Greeks couldn't find a use for this word. Now, in the Greek culture, this word referred to the highest and noblest form of love which sees something infinitely precious in its objects. Think about that. This was the Greek understanding of the word, and they struggled to find a place to use it. Because apart from God, it can be incredibly difficult to see something being infinitely precious. To see somebody who's hurt you or who grinds you and just rubs you the wrong way or they've said things about you or they've failed you and let you down. They haven't come through for you to be able to look at them and say that person is infinitely precious. And therefore, I'm going to express the noblest form of love for them. As a noun in the Bible, it's always used in a theological context. It's used in reference to the love of God. All right, so understanding this word agape, then let's look at this. Let's start with John 3.16, which Anna read for us so beautifully today. For God so loved the world, agape, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 4, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. So now if we look at love in the New Testament, the first thing we see is this. The Father loved the world, so he sent his Son. The advent, Jesus coming to earth, the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, is the greatest manifestation of the love of God. Right? It's the greatest thing that we have to look to. And so why is Christmas such a big deal? This is why. Because it shows that the Father loved the world so much that he sent his son. Amy Carmichael was an Irish missionary. And she went to India to preach the gospel and to work with orphans. And she served in India for 55 years without ever taking a year off. Giving her life for the orphans and the lowly of the nation of India. And Amy Carmichael said this, You can always give without loving but you can never love without giving. You can never love without giving. God loved the world, so he gave. 
Let's continue. You'll notice we did a Bible study in Deuteronomy. Now we're doing a Bible study in John. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. This is actually John the Baptist speaking this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then John 10.17, this is Jesus speaking, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And then jumping to Philippians 2.8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what are we reading here? We read that the Father not only loved the world, we read that the Father loved the Son. And because the Son felt loved, he responded by being obedient, even obedient to the cross. If you're filling in your blanks, you're going to notice that several of the blanks are the same word. Obedience. Jesus was obedient to the Father because he experienced the Father's love. And Jesus' obedience led him all the way to the cross. So then what about us? 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Right? So love did not come naturally from us. Love starts when the love of God is manifested in our lives. When we recognize the reality that God loved the world so much that he sent the Son. And when we understand that Jesus loved so much that he went to the cross. When we understand that level of love, then we begin to love. And then how is our love expressed? John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 2 John 1, 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So what happens next? We love the Son, so we are obedient to him. The Father loved the world, so he sent the Son. The son experienced the love of the father, so he was obedient even to the point of the cross. So now we experience the love of God through the cross, and so what do we do? We live in obedience to the son. Sounds really similar to the Old Testament, right? It's covenant love. So then we take it to the next step. John 15, just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By all this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Right? And so we abide in his love. How do we abide in his love? We live in obedience to him. And when we abide in his love, we are marked as his disciples by the way that we love others. So the way that we choose to love others, right? 
The Father loved the world. He sent the Son. The Son experienced the love of the Father, so he was obedient to the cross. We've experienced the love of Jesus, so we live in obedience to him. In that obedience, we now abide in his love. And because we abide in his love, we can now love the world with the love of God. And people will know that we are his followers. And this includes the way we treat our friends and the way we treat our enemies. And this is interesting, and this is where Jesus takes it a step further. Because nowhere in the Old Testament law does it tell them to love their enemies. It says when foreigners come into your community, love them like they were one of you. But nowhere in the Old Testament does it tell them to love their enemies. That is a new love that Jesus brought. So when Jesus said, love your enemies, this was a revolutionary, groundbreaking teaching even for the Jews. I love C.S. Lewis when he was discussing, you know, well, uh, how do I know if I love my neighbor? His answer was, don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Just act as if you did. Right? Just start doing good for them. Right? A noble love that is not connected to feelings, but it's a commitment. Loving your enemies. Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church in Southern California, he said, God teaches us to love by putting some unlovely people around us. Right? So every time there's somebody around you that you're having a hard time loving, you just stop and say, thank you, Lord, for sending me a teacher to teach me how to love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So let's bring this back to the Advent. Let's bring this back to Christmas. Let's talk about adoration. What is adoration? By a biblical definition, adoration is words and postures of worship that show our love and submission to God. So adoration in the truly biblical context can only be expressed to God. Now, some of these words and postures in the, in the ancient kingdoms were also expressed towards the king. Because in a lot of these cultures, the king or the emperor or the Caesar were considered to be deity or were considered to be a representative of the sovereign deity, right? And so a lot of these same words and postures of adoration were expressed towards kings. But when you read the Bible, if anybody tried to take a posture of adoration before a man, a godly man, that man would say, stop. Don't take a posture of adoration before me. That is reserved for God alone. So it's words and it's postures. So if we look at the Christmas story, we start with the angels, Luke 2.13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Right? The angels were using words to express adoration to God. That he was the one that was worthy. That he was the king that deserved all of our worship. And then there is posture. As we read about the wise men, right? So if we go to Matthew chapter 2. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi, wise men from the east, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Well, why would King Herod be troubled? Because they were coming to show adoration to a different king when he expected the adoration to be showed to him. Why was Jerusalem troubled? Because they believed you could only show adoration to God. And it would be blasphemous to come and show adoration to a baby that was born. So Herod gathers together the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him also. Obviously, they figured out pretty easily that he was lying and that he had no desire to worship the king. But here we go. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so what do we see from these wise men from the east? We see a posture. When they came into the presence of Jesus, they fell to the ground and they took a posture of adoration. And they worshiped the new king. Let me have the worship team come back up today. So the question is this, how do we put, that's your pastor's typo there, how do we put the concepts of love and adoration into practice this holiday season? So what does this have to do with us now? All right, we, we just studied love, we try to understand love, but what does it mean that we're talking about this right now at Christmas time? And my answer would be this, and I love, Christelle, what you shared at the beginning of service, talking about that you're flying out tomorrow. You got to go love somebody. You got to make sure that the gospel is in your mouth and that you are ready to speak the words of truth and love. But here's the reality what if right now in this season you're not feeling anything? What if, I mean, you know you love God and you're not questioning your faith, you're not doubting the existence of Jesus or your faith, but you're just like, I'm just not feeling anything. It's just really melancholy right now. I'm just really down. Like, I know I should care, but I just don't. Maybe you're having a hard time right now loving people. I know I should be doing more for people. I know I should be loving people and doing good for them and their welfare. And I just, I know I should, but I'm just not feeling it. 
You know you should be living in obedience to Jesus and his commands, but you're like, I, I know I've got sin in my life, and I know I should change, but I just don't have any motivation to change. And so I just keep on sinning. And it kind of worries me because I'm not really caring anymore. Right? Come on. We go through those seasons, right? Our faith journey is not all on the mountaintop, just angels singing in glory and we're just super passionate. No. We go through the valleys and we go through those seasons where we're dry and we're melancholy and I'm just not feeling it. And I want to be passionate for God and I know I'm supposed to be passionate and I'm supposed to be sharing the gospel and I'm supposed to be doing these things for the kingdom, but I just don't do it. Where do we turn? We turn to adoration. We love because God first loved us, right? Jesus loved all the way to the cross because he lived in the love of God. And so as we have learned today, to truly love, we have to be experiencing his love. And to truly love, we have to be walking in obedience to him. But where do we go if we're dry and we don't feel anything and there is no desire to be obedient and there is no desire to love people and I really don't want to be nice to my grumpy neighbor and I really don't want to be nice to my coworker at work and I really don't want to be nice to my family members at Christmas time and I really don't want to forgive that person. Where do we go? We go to adoration. What is adoration? It's words and it's posture. It's words and it's posture. And now you can see why we've come full circle. And I said I was, I was getting ahead of my sermon when we were worshiping today. Because I believe that we go to words and to posture. And if we're really dry and we're really broken, a lot of times words aren't enough. Because words can just, they can just be verbose. We can just repeat them out of tradition. We can just repeat them because we've heard them so many times. But there's something about posture. There's something about going back to a place of adoration where we give ourselves in complete submission to God. And we put ourselves in a position to receive the love of the Father. And when we begin to receive the love of the Father, and when we position ourselves in that posture, love will come to life again in our spirits. Obedience will come to life. Loving the undeserving will come to life. Keeping my commitment to do what is best for people will come to life. Loving my spouse, loving my kids, staying steadfast in my love, regardless of how people are acting around me. It will come to life in our posture. I want to invite you guys this Christmas season. Nativities are great, and of course we can get into theological arguments about that the Magi shouldn't be there in the manger and all that kind of stuff. But nativities are wonderful to remind us of what it is that matters. The Incarnation. Jesus becoming a human. 
and that we can bow ourselves before that manger. We can bow ourselves before the cross. We can bow ourselves before the throne of God and remind ourselves just how much God loves us to reawaken the love in our lives. Jesus, Jesus. Father, I pray today, let these words go forth. Lord, let them take root in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that there would be a seed that was sown today that would change us. I pray that there would be a place, uh, Lord, that each one of us uh, is willing to break out of our comfort zone and take on a new posture. I pray that there would be a place of brokenness and humility. Lord God, there would be a place where we would bow down low before the greatest manifestation of the love of Father the Son coming to earth. Jesus, let us leave here today with a fresh revelation of love. Let us leave here today with a new understanding. Let us leave here today with what it means to live in a love relationship, a covenant relationship with you, Lord. But more than anything, God, I pray that our hearts would be opened again, that in the dryness, in the struggle, in the sin, in the hardness, in the pride, there would be a breaking and a softening and a humbling. And there would be a fresh place of abiding in your love, Lord. And it would begin to show itself in concrete actions as we begin to love those around us. And we would be truly marked as your followers, Lord. Call us to that place. Call us to that posture. Jesus, do that work in us today, we ask. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.